Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I am absolutely addicted to true crime, and I have converted Sabrina into the true crime world. Actually, my mother was the first one to convert you into the true crime world. Yes, she was. She got you that Manson book, and that was the end of that. Oh, I was wow. I was hooked. Yeah. I so hate to say we, it, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> it is a good book, though. It's like It's one of the best written true crime books. Well, that voice that you hear is Michelle McPhee, investigative journalist, TV screenwriter, and author of not one, not two, but seven true crime books. Oh, we are so excited to talk to you, Michelle. I'm so excited to talk to you. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, you have so much going on. So I'm just going to start with the beginning. Okay. How did you become interested in true crime? Well, I was always kind of nosy. So I always wanted to know the answers to things. And, um, you know, the Boston Globe, my hometown newspaper, had this internship. But at the time, it wasn't open to state school kids. It was only open to like the elite colleges. So back then, there was this Irish guy that used to protest saying that the Globe was discriminating against the Irish. So I joined him and I said, they're discriminating against state school kids and Boston kids. And I became the first state school kid to get into that co-op program. And you're supposed to be, you know, getting faxes and, you know, getting the editor's breakfast and coffee. But one day I'm sitting there sorting faxes. That's how long ago it was, faxes that actually came over the machine. And something came over the police scanner about a shooting at a 99 restaurant in Charlestown, which is, you know, a neighborhood in Boston, made famous in the movie The Town. So everybody knows Charlestown, the townies, the code of silence. And the editor was like, who can go? And, you know, a new hire for the Globe was like, I don't know what Charlestown is. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'll go. And I (laughs) jumped up and it turned into this. It was a big, giant story about this mob massacre. And I knew everybody involved because I worked in the North End in Little Italy at, at a coffee shop, you know, this mobbed up coffee shop. And they let me write the story because I knew so much. And that's kind of how I broke into the crime world. Ironically, that story got me threatened at gunpoint. Right. Later. Well, I want to, you've been threatened a lot. So that's really I the first, yes. so that's really, that way, that's really the first story that captured your attention or as a kid, were you always interested in murder and mayhem? You know, not intentionally. I just think it was the, it's the adrenaline that came with going to that very first crime scene. You know, the cacophony of police sirens, the chaos, people being thrown to the ground, cops and, you know, horrified civilians. It was just so much chaos. I think that I more thrived on chaos. Maybe like the childhood that I had prepped me for a world where I am comfortable in, you know, mayhem. Wow. Wow. That that's that's really, really intriguing. That's intriguing. That's deep. Makes me want to circle back and ask you about your sex life. If wow. you thrive on chaos. <laughs> wow. How did you go from there to sex? Well, she is throwing she's like and people being thrown down uh, and okay. sirens Michelle, and police. This is a well, different side I'm seeing of Melissa this morning. How much caffeine have you had? 
a lot. <laughs> a lot. Sabrina, wow, you transitioned straight into that. Okay. Yeah. Well, it I just kind of like it. I look straightforward. I look yeah. straightforward. I, I would probably say that as a single woman, that I still kind of go for the bad boys. You know, I definitely don't like the weaklings. And that means that LA is a hard place to date. Yeah. So there you go, Sabrina. Ha ha. Got my answer. Um, so was that too you, much, Sabrina? Too, no, too much don't intel? don't ask her. She's too polite. <laughs> oh, so so which so you 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 started saying that you were threatened. Yeah, I was threatened at gunpoint by um, the one survivor. So I mean, I'm happy to like share the story if anyone share the story. Me. Share the story. Well, no, I mean, it, it was a so I wrote it for the Boston Globe. I wasn't supposed to be writing. I was a co-op. This was my first byline. You know, everyone was excited. I think my parents still have that byline, you know, framed in their house somewhere. And um, but I got a call from a magazine editor saying you should write a magazine story. And so I wrote I went to his office. He helped me out. This is like why you kick in doors and make things happen. Absolutely. You know, I, right. Like you have to make things happen. And I wrote this story called The Steak Tips Massacre, Murder at the 99. And it was about these five mobsters who got gunned down in this lunchtime crowd. And it was one of my favorite stories I ever wrote. And that story got the attention of a, of a brilliant and lovely, uh, the late Pete Hamill, who was oh, one yeah. of the best journalists in the country. Yeah, and He was running the time. Daily News at the time. And I was still in college, but he hired me. So I quit school, moved to New York, and became the first uh, female police bureau chief. Wow. Okay, you sound pretty fearless. Did you have any reservations about, you know, being involved with this story? I know you said that you had worked you know, in the town and you knew, you know, some of the locals that were mobsters and you felt okay. Ex explain that experience. Well, I think, you know, Boston's a small city. So I didn't just know the mobsters that I waited on at the Cafe Roma or the ones that I made friends with at the nightclub I slung drinks at. It was, I knew all the cops too. So in a way I was, you know, shielded because there were certain mobsters that liked the story, obviously, because they had rivals. And there were cops who definitely were going to make sure that nobody did anything violent towards me. So in a way, I felt sort of insulated. And I think that, that both sides of the law have a begrudging respect for people who do the job, who get off their ass, don't rewrite press releases, show up at the scene, you know, ask questions, protect their sources. It's kind of a dying art. People don't do it anymore. No, but I want to hear about, so who, so let's go back to being threatened at gunpoint. So that was all part of this, your investigation into this story. Well, so the story came out and it was a huge hit. It was very exciting, but there was a line in the story that apparently the survivor of the shootout, there was only one, took Umberjet. And it was, you know, after Whitey Bulger took down the Italian mafia, the La Cosa Nostra was looking for scraping the bottom of the barrel for new talents. And that's where they found Bobby Luisi. So wow. his sign did not like that line. <laughs> and as true as it was, and this story comes full circle like last year. So I'm rollerblading down the street with a friend of mine. Rollerblading. This is how old it was. Exactly. And I just say this is the story. What year was this? Oh, the story came out in 1998. Nine, so mm -hmm. 1996, I think. So 99, okay. 99. Okay, 99. So it was right around that time. It came out. No, it was 96, sorry. Uh, it came out. It was like a scene out of a movie where cars pulled up. 
uh, a ruffian climbed out. I recognized a couple of them. They put a gun to my head and said, if you ever write one more word about my family, I'm going to blow your brains out. And so, of course, I was crying, but I didn't call the cops because you didn't do that in Boston. Right. I called another reporter at the Boston Globe, a guy named Kevin Cullen, who's still around, a very well-known crime reporter. And mm-hmm. Kevin Cullen called a statey who dealt with the mob, Bobby Long. And I didn't know this for 20 years, but Bobby Long went to the mob and said, if anything happens to her, you're going to have yeah, a problem. Yes, we're gonna, you're going to have a big problem. And two weeks later, I got a call from the New York Daily News. They were looking for a new rookie reporter, and I just moved. I left. And it was great. I, all I had, I moved into a little dumpy apartment in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. I had one. Remember the, those Papasan chairs from Pier 1? Absolutely. Yep. A nest, right? So yep, I used yep. that as like the couch during the day and the bed at night. I pull off that pad. And it was exciting. I was broke and enthralled. And it was a fun time to be in New York. And I uh, swore I would never, ever write about the mafia again. Did you keep that promise? My very first assignment, I'm working the night shift, 5, five to 2 a.m. My very first assignment is, hey, uh, Boston, John Gotti Jr. just got locked up in Queens with a trunk full of horse tranquilizers. <laughs> My very first story. And to today, John Gotti and I are friends, and we're working on a project together. Junior. And I think John Gotti Jr. Jr., mm-hmm. right. Yeah. John Gotti Jr., who, you know, has a pretty good story to tell. But nonetheless, it's all about, I think, making sources, making friends and protecting those sources. And those sources come from both sides because, you know, a lot of my reporting is based on the FBI using very similar tactics to the mafia. And, you know, even this conversation that we're having, the much needed conversation we're having about policing, the federal law enforcement arm of that is never discussed. Like you don't hear FBI agents never go to jail. They get away with a lot. That's and, well, wow. that's super interesting. But you've you've we're gonna come back to that because that has a lot to do with your new books. Yes. Um, you've what is you've had a lot of close encounters while investigating stories, which has been the most frightening. I mean, of what I read, I would think it's the KKK on a deserted dirt road. I, that was hair raising so yeah so you know that term bone chilling which means nothing until you actually feel it of course right? like of course you don't even know what it means like it's just like a phrase right but then when you're driving down a road and you see a cardboard box nailed to a tree that says this road is protected by the kkk it's terrifying and you know it's you're in the middle of nowhere and um Ironically, the people we were looking at, all I remember about that story, we were looking for a woman from Massachusetts, Stoughton, Massachusetts, who was married to the head of the KKK at the time. And we pulled up to this compound in the middle of nowhere. And I was with this Jewish photographer from New York Daily News who had a big star, David, on his neck. And I'm like, you might want to put that under your sweater. Like, like, yeah, let's let's not provoke people here. Let's get this done. And they weren't there. But what was there is the creepiest thing I've ever seen is they had an albino dog. Like even the dog was, was white, like, was super white <laughs> and crazy. Like, like it was nuts. It was oh nuts. And like just trying to crawl out of that, you know, you have to go, I don't know, 12 miles into this crazy wooded area and then 12 miles out. And, you know, the place is loaded with cameras and they were watching us, but we got off that road pretty safely. Wow. That had to be terrifying, which... Which was the most terrifying encounter when you were? I have to tell you, it's the most recent um, 
brouhaha with Aaron Hernandez, which was based on a completely false narrative. I think what happened in that story was, you know, I covered the story for ABC News for a long time when he was arrested for a murder. And almost immediately, I, I learned that the motive for this murder is that the victim had walked in on Aaron Hernandez and his high school boyfriend. He had been in a relationship for a long time with a man. And so, you know, the, the ABC News declined to report that. Fine with me. I'm writing my Boston Marathon book. I forgot all about it. And I, the only reason it's relevant to me at all is because it was the motive for the murder. The victim, right. who is going to be his future brother-in-law, they were supposed to go to... People forget how close this was. Like, the victim was dating his child's Sis- mother's sister. So, right. this, so basically, they his were sister, like basically his sister-in-law. Correct. So th- these people were family. They were supposed to go to Father's Day brunch the very next day. But instead, Aaron Hernandez shot him in the back. And not in a very smart way, as we all know. He chewed yeah. up a big piece of bubblelicious, threw it on the ground, you know... There were cameras everywhere. He got captured in his own home security cameras, carrying the gun around. Like, not exactly the perfect murder, to be honest. But nobody ever talked about why he did it. And the reason that he did it, according to my longtime police sources, was because of this encounter. And Aaron was afraid that he was going to tell people. And he thought that he had said something, made a derogatory remark. And uh, so I went on, when my book came out, I went on a radio show. And the guys made a very juvenile joke and I giggled at it. And then all of a sudden I am the perpetrator of Aaron Hernandez's death, which was, I, I thought, I think it was honestly sexist because all the sports reporters and all the other reporters who were covering the story didn't get the real facts, you know, and when it came out, they all denied it. Like, this isn't even true. And now we all know it's true. And not one person has apologized and said, you know, Michelle McPhee was right from day one. This was the motive for the murder. Instead, they all attacked me. And you've seen, I'm sure if you read that Newsweek story I wrote, I mean, threatening my niece was worse than anything. Like somebody actually putting in writing, your niece deserves to be raped, my little niece. And your family should die in a house fire. Like these, these keyboard warriors are more dangerous than any gangster, terrorist, you know, uh, dirtbag, rapist, all these people I've written about and had close encounters with were not as terrifying as these anonymous I was gonna basement say dwellers. Right. And it did was a you lot get, of the fans. And how crazy is that? I mean, I'm sure you were just... Did you bring in extra protection? I mean, you know, I had friends that were watching out. You know, I was I was moving around. I In Boston, I had to take my name out of the buzzers because people were showing up at my building. Right. You don't wow. want to just walk around looking over your shoulder. That's nowhere to live. I mean, that would just it must have been terrifying. Well, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's the, I guess it's the, um, and I know you both understand this. It's the, it's the celebrity culture that's worse. Like terrorists, you know, you, you can kind of avoid them. You can see them coming from a mile away, but these wackos who are so obsessed with Aaron Hernandez as a football player and, and completely disregard the fact that he murdered at least four people. Right. <laughs> like he murdered at least four people. We are not talking about what lionizing a guy who, granted, he had problems. He had CTE may have played a role. We'll never know. But the truth of the matter is, this is a man who killed four people. Yeah, not one, not two. Four. four. And two of them were like these innocent guys at a nightclub who spilled a drink on him. That's how much of a, a raging, he was taking angel dust. Like, this is not a guy that we should be holding up as a hero. Right. right. This is a guy worth $40 million who screwed up his own life. I didn't do it. Right. 
I agree. But you brought up terrorists. Let's talk about your two latest books, Operation Mean Streets, which is actually coming out soon, which is infiltrating M13. But I want to actually first talk about uh, your your two Boston Marathon uh, books, uh, Mayhem and Maximum Harm, both of which really do take a deep dive into the investigation of the Boston Marathon bombings and the Sarnev brothers. Which should I read first? You should read Mayhem because that's an updated version of Maximum Harm. Okay. And, and that's going to be the subject of a historic media podcast coming out in September. And I've been at this investigation for eight years because I was somebody who was on the ground on 9-11 when the towers fell. And right. I lost a lot of friends that day. I've been covering, obviously, I worked at one police plaza for a decade. Um, I covered police and fire. So among the 343 firefighters and the 23 NYPD cops and the 32 Port Authority police officers and you know, an FBI agent and EMTs. I knew a lot of those people, like close friends who died. And to this day, the government is protecting the hijackers. To this day, every administration refuses to cooperate with a civil lawsuit that's been brought against the Saudi royal family by the victims of 9-11. And it's unconscionable to me that we are protecting secrets and this is what they're using to stop the real, you know, um, investigation into this. They're using the the code state secrets. And we're not going to be able to tell you that because it's a state secret. So I've been covering that story for a long time. And I saw some of the intelligence community errors that helped lead to 9-11. And you want to make sure that that stuff doesn't happen again. So imagine I just moved back to Boston. Um at the Boston Marathon, which is an iconic race, you know, um, at the time I was engaged to a firefighter who worked right on the street, so I was right there. And again, here's another terror attack. And the same mistakes were made. And I started to investigate Tamil and Zaniyah, the older brother. And it became pretty clear, I believe, and many, many, many law enforcement sources of mine believe, that Tamil and Zaniyah was an informant for the federal government. And really? Yes. Why do you think this? Well, let's let's take it's such a long rabbit hole, but let's take the idea that he was on two terror watch lists at the time of the Boston Marathon. So in September of 2011, the FSB now consider the politics of this. Now, the Russian FSB warned us with two letters that they had intercepted text messages between Tamil and the older brother and some dangerous jihadi in the Northern Caucasus. We have this guy, Tamil Zanayev, is communicating with terrorists. He lives at 410 Norfolk Avenue in Cambridge. You should check him out. So the Russians knew all this. They knew all this and they told us. Okay. The, the Americans so, probably knew too. They knew because he was working for them. That so he, Yes. So Tamilin. They tell us that he's going to travel to Russia and try to join the jihad. So the government puts him on two terror watch lists. And guess what? In January of 2012, where does and I go while on two terror watch lists without an American passport or a Russian passport, just on his green card, which was one of the 9-11 recommendations that you shouldn't be able to travel on your green card. He travels to Russia. Everyone he meets with is tracked and killed. There's a big shootout in the Northern Caucasus uh, in a place called Udamesh. The only guy who gets out alive is Tamlin Zanayev, but the very jihadists that he was communicating with were all shot and killed in this raid by Russian counterterrorism officials. Tamlin comes back to the U.S. 
without a passport again onto Terra watch list, breezes through customs, and he's on the fast track to citizenship. I can't believe, first of all, that anyone can get through customs without a passport. It's well, crazy. Well, you can if you crazy. have some help. Well, and you say, and you would especially think like- You're coming from you're a terrorist traveling on a green card And you're on watch list, like you'll be super flagged. Yeah, no, he, he was not flagged. He had some favoritism. Clearly. Okay, get so go on. Help. So he comes, angel. he's the only survivor of this massive shootout and he comes back and just cruises through customs. Cruises through customs and then he's on the fast track to citizenship, which he is not eligible for because we have something called the um, moral turpitude clause. So if you're an immigrant trying to get naturalized and you get arrested, you can't even apply for citizenship for five years. You have to clean up all that wreckage. He had been arrested for slapping his girlfriend around in Cambridge for dressing too provocatively. So he was ineligible for citizenship, but all of a sudden he's on the on the fast track for it. Now, how'd you find all this out? Digging, reporting, records, A files, which is which is why this podcast is going to be different. I think one of the frustrations I've had, because this reporting has been ignored for you know eight years now, is th- this is I'm not talking conspiracy theory. This isn't my thoughts. Everything in my book, and you can see how detailed. Yeah. It, it's completely detailed. I Everything that I say is sourced in writing and in interviews, court records, police reports, bomb expert reports, everything I have is annotated. And I think that the biggest thing about the podcast is that we're going to have a website that people can go and examine the evidence for themselves. What really launched it for me is let's let's just start from the very beginning. The FBI had an open case against this guy. They interviewed him several times. Now I'm a reporter. If I interviewed any one of you. And then in a year, you blow up the marathon. I'm going to remember your face. We're expected to believe that the most elite unit in the FBI, the counterterrorism unit in Boston, who had an open case against this guy, didn't recognize him. We're expected to believe that facial recognition, which has cost this country millions upon millions of dollars, didn't pick up the identical face of Tamlin Zanayev and his mugshot from his Cambridge arrest. We're expected to believe that. So it's absurd. Yeah, it's absurd. So if he was supposedly, like you think, an informant, yes, which is how he got in and out of the country, why would he then blow up the Boston Marathon? Because we all know he was desperate to become an American citizen. He was a very good boxer, accomplished. He had won the um, you know uh, Golden Gloves twice as a heavyweight champ. He was into MMA fighting, which goes back to, remember, he, he murdered three of his friends who were mixed martial arts fighters on the 10-year anniversary of 9-11, which no, is also part that, of the story. Okay, good information. Well, <laughs> this, I mean, it's like you keep pulling back layers upon layers of this individual, his, his entire profile. Is it safe to say you became obsessed with uncovering the truth because of all these red flags that were popping up, you know, with this story? Yes, because there's one thing I cannot stand in my personal life or my professional life, and it's being lied to. And I think that in a lot of ways, we've become accustomed as um, Americans to accepting narratives from the federal government that without pulling back those layers. So, I mean, you guys remember Carrie in Homeland when she went off her meds and sat in that room? Yes. Like, I kind of, my house looked like that. Like I had charts and boards and string and, you know. Just connecting people. So yes, I got obsessed with Sabrina a lot. And remember, you don't make any money on these books. This was no. 
truly a passion project. No, it was more a pissed off project. Like I'm sick of it. Okay. So, so did they, so he had murdered people and gotten away with it. So on, on the 10 year anniversary of nine 11, three young mixed martial arts fighters who were very close to Tamlin's and I have were found nearly decapitated, slaughtered, uh, their bodies were sprinkled with marijuana because remember the Zanayevs were involved in the in the pot business. The younger brother was a prolific drug dealer on his UMass Dartmouth campus, and they left the money behind. So this was not a robbery; it was a message. And the and it became very clear almost immediately that Tamlin Zanayev should have been considered a su- a, a suspect. All of the victims' friends told the police that. Tamerlan didn't show up at the memorial service, even though one of the victims was his best friend. And he often described Brendan Mess, one of the victims, as his only American friend. Uh, it, the woman who found the bodies was um, a fellow Muslim who had a, went to the same controversial mosque that Tamerlan's and I have attended. And I, I believe that mosque is exactly why he was signed up to become an informant in the first place, because the mosque had, you know, extensive ties to terrorism. It was actually started by a guy who was serving a life sentence for laundering money for Al Qaeda. And there have been multiple convicted terrorists who have moved through that mosque since. So I think that's we all know about the NYPD's program, you know, mosque crawling. And I think that's why they utilized Tamlin in the first place. So it became pretty clear that he should have been considered a suspect, but somehow he wasn't. And what became even more interesting is after the Boston Marathon, I started getting calls when people saw Tamlin's face that he was friends with one of the dead guys. You know, McPhee, remember that story you did about Waltham and the three dead guys? Tamlin's and I was really close to one of the dead guys. So I dug and we broke the story for ABC News that Tamlin was indeed a suspect in that murder. One of the facts that came out at the time when I covered it was that it was a white Mercedes at the scene, which is what Tamlin drove. And his DNA was found inside the crime scene, which for some reason was never considered relevant. Uh, He committed this crime with a guy named Ibrahim Todashev. And the FBI went to go visit Ibrahim Todashev at his apartment in Orlando, Florida in May, right after the Boston Marathon. And during the interrogation, which they did in his bedroom, which is bizarre. Like you don't bizarre. interrogate a murder suspect who's an MMA fighter uh, in his bedroom, but the guy got shot dead. So dead men tell no tales and that triple murder is still unsolved. But I think the, you know, the, the fact that Tamlin got away with that triple murder of those three young men, if, if there had been accountability for that homicide, the Boston Marathon never would have happened. So it goes back to my question. Why how that why was he why did he blow up the Boston Marathon and 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 obviously colluded with his brother I th- I think that it's twofold you know my grandfather used to say you go into a barber shop long enough you're going to get a haircut and they had this guy running around jihadi circles you know he was hanging around so he had relatives in Russia who were known jihadi who were jihadi sympathizers who funded jihad and he was wiretapping them so he spent six months in the clutches of these people that were very, um, you know, egregiously anti-American and dangerous. So he spent a lot of time with those people. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, he intentionally like caused a ruckus to get like-minded extremists to come toward him. And those were his friends in America. 
Then he comes back. The Duko Umarov, who's now dead, he was like the Osama bin Laden of Russia. He had this terrorist portal, like the Dredge Report for terrorists. And right after Tamalin left, he wrote a story about the American rat or the snitch that gave up the location of those poor angels that died. So people knew that there was a rat. So Tamalin comes back. People in Russia now know he's a rat. He's on the fast track to citizenship, which he desperately wanted because he wanted to fight in the U.S. Olympics. He even participated in a photo essay at BU, Will Box for Passport. And that's all he wanted was citizenship. Well, he went to USCIS multiple, multiple, multiple times, and they kept jerking him around, in his opinion. Like, come back next week, come back this. You forgot this piece of paperwork. And then in January of 2013, he went there one last time. He had a meltdown. This is well publicized. He demanded a name change, and he changed his name to his undercover name in Russia, which is Muaz. And then he stormed out of there in a rage, throwing stuff around, and you know, the Boston Marathon bombing happened not long after that. Wow. So I feel like he feels like he got screwed over. And snapped, basically. Snapped. But well, wow. he had spent all this time. So he's like straddling these two worlds. You know, when he first got to America, he was like a Euro trash kid running around with fancy clothes and hanging around, at, you know, coffee shops in the North End, which is where he met his now wife, Karima Zanayeva. Uh, who was Catherine Russell, an American girl who was going to Emerson College. Uh, so, you know, he was then all of a sudden he's this radical and this extremist with all these extremist ideals. And I think he just it's like Donnie Brasco is a friend of mine, Joe Pistone. And right. I think to this day, Joe Pistone is more mob than he is FBI. So so he's obviously he's he the brother is still in jail getting a he's getting a check he's getting a stimulus check in his in his death row jail cell and then the which wife drives people crazy yes that would drive that drives me crazy as well and he's suing us for a variety of reasons the wife they had children where they had is one she? child she, where is she? The, i found her living in new jersey with the daughter um you know it's interesting because she should have been arrested and charged in this case Primarily because her computers showed searches and emails that she knew about the 9-11 murders. Why did she get a pass? Why do you think she got a pass? Because a lot of women don't. They, you know, they take the rap sometimes for their mates and end up uh, spending longer sentences sometimes. Why did she get a pass? What was special or what were they trying to protect or avoid? It's like it's all like this tangled web. You nailed it, Sabrina, because remember Omar Mateen, who was the Pulse nightclub shooter. And he, during this rampage he did, he actually gave a shout out to his homeboy, Tamalin Zanayim, the marathon bomber. His wife was charged. Well, how did that case go away? Because it was revealed that Omar Mateen's father was an FBI informant and the government hid that. So her case went away. So I don't think they were going to make the same mistake twice. Yeah, my 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 brain is going into overload, and, and you talk about <laughs> now, that. Can you imagine being my, in my brain all day, all night? Oh no, my god, you, I'm so you've jealous. Got it, you've got I, it, I'm you've, so jealous. Yes, but Michelle has it all. You know, she has it organized. She's just spitting it out. She's going left and right and back and forth and rewinding. 
Yeah, we're spinning a little bit. <laughs> it's a lot of information to process, and it took me eight years to put it all together. So, you know. What's the, what, what shot, what, which part of the story shocked you the most? Because you, you, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. So I'm guessing in general, you're pretty, pretty immune to any kind of, oh my God moment. Just call it what it is. She's a tough one. Yeah, but <laughs> period. <laughs> What was the one thing that you didn't expect or that you went, holy shit, seriously? Okay, this is, there's, there's a couple, but one of the most egregious ones is the FBI steadfastly refused to show up at congressional hearings investigating the Boston Marathon. Just didn't show up. So in the podcast, we have both sides of the aisle saying this is bullshit. Like Mike McCall is like, this information belongs to the American people and it does not belong to the FBI and this is unconscionable. And he's a right right wing guy from Texas. Then you have Bill Keating, who is a left wing guy from Massachusetts saying, how dare the FBI not show up to these hearings? Like it's, can you imagine if we didn't show up to a congressional hearing or to any sort of subpoena? So the FBI got away with this. So Congress became so desperate for information you guys all know who Steven Seagal is, right? Yeah. Hard to kill Steven Seagal. Yeah, with the bad ponytail. With the very bad skullet. So yeah. <laughs> Steven Seagal led Congress to Russia. So can you imagine? The, here's this diplomatic envoy led by Steven Seagal going to Russia so that they could get more information about the Boston Marathon bombers from the FSB than they could get from the FBI. They didn't bring Dennis Rodman with them? <laughs> I know. It's like, <laughs> it's like uh, Can you grief. imagine? No. I mean, they, I mean, the FBI continues to get away with it. And if you think about the timeline, April 2013 is when Bob Bala quit. April 2013 is when Janet Napolitano, the then Homeland Security Secretary, quit. Within days of this very bungled testimony she gave about the Boston Marathon, she quit. The head of the Boston FBI field office quit. And you know what happened to him next? He got no. a job as a consultant on the movie Patriots Day about the marathon with Mark Wahlberg. Oh, I saw that. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. Yeah, it was. I mean, it wasn't the real story, but it was a great undeserved um, round of applause for the actions of Bostonians and first responders. Yeah, no, it, 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 the depiction absolutely. was yes, it was very um, well done. Oh my god, I could talk to you about this forever. Um, What's I I just have a million questions. So basically, what we need to say is this: If you want more information about this story and all the details that you thought you knew, you are going to have to stay tuned because the podcast is coming in September. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, why Why does the FBI get away with so much? I think I, I, you know what? I ask this all the time of other federal friends of mine. And I think it goes back to the Hoover days and how much juice they have on Congress. You guys remember Gary Condit? Yes. Yes. And do you know what he was investigating when he became the prime suspect in that murder he did not commit? No. The CIA torture story. So he he was in charge of investigating the allegations that the CIA was torturing prisoners. And all of a sudden, he's taken out by this, you know, cloud that he murdered his lover. And it's it's really interesting because the guy who did kill Chandra Levy, or who was convicted of it, is now claiming that, you know, some sort of shadowy government official paid him to do it. Okay. Oh, wow. And I'm not saying I, that's true. I mean, trust me, I don't know. I just know this is in court records. I have no idea. But you do start to think, like, 
maybe they do it if they have juice on these members of Congress and Congress is too afraid to take them on for that very reason. It's crazy. Like Hoover um, used I, to keep the files, right? So oh, why yeah. would they stop doing that? Absolutely. Well, I, I think that you need to double check and make sure your phones aren't tapped and no extra cameras at your place because you are a mound of information and you continue to be an, a, a leader, a, a leader, and you turn your over every, you do turn over every stone. You're the real deal. So well, thank you. Guys. I am terrified to ask this. Because we know you've got the podcast coming. One of your books, the M M I was it the game MS-13, book? MS thirteen, yeah. MS thirteen mm-hmm. is being turned into a movie or a limited series, which you're working on. It's gonna be it's gonna be binge worthy. Yes. What Thank you. <laughs> and this is why I'm scared actually, to ask this question. Yep. What's next? Well, actually it's I am I think I'm a little tired of putting my head on the chopping block. So that's why I moved out to LA. Because now I'm working in television and essentially taking these true life stories and turning them into fictional series. I just, um, I just, I can't talk too much about it, but I just sold a series with Mark Consuelos, who I love, a wonderful man, and Jonathan Tucker, a fantastic actor and a very close friend of mine. Um, that's it has a bunch of characters that I've covered over the years, and you know might take a hard look at the Fast and Furious scandal and the missing guns. So what will it take for a story to make you go, wow, and want to do this kind of a deep dive? Like what, what is going to make you, I don't want to use the word retirement, but move back into the, the honest true crime space? You know, it's funny. When I started writing for City on a Hill, um, which is a great show on Showtime with yes, run by is. Tom Fontana and Kevin Bacon, who's a lovely, uh, I thought, this is it. This is what I should do. And while we were in the writer's room, Whitey Bulger was beaten to death. And I got a text from my sources. So, you know, I want to look, this is my first TV writing gig. I want to be a good writer. I don't want to piss off Tom Fontana. He's a god, right? So right. I'm like looking at it like, oh my God, Whitey just got beaten to death. So I say it out loud. And they're like, no, we would have heard it on CNN. And I was like, no, no, I, this source is legit. So I called, I, I stepped out to go to the bathroom because I had to know, you know, it's right. true. So I called another source in the bathroom. It was true. From the bathroom, I sent out a tweet. Whitey Bulger was just murdered in prison. And I went back to work in the writer's room. And for hours, people were like, Michelle McPhee is full of shit. Whitey Bulger's not dead. No one would have, how would he have been murdered? And sure enough, five hours he later, was it was confirmed mm-hmm. that he was dead. So I think to answer your question, Melissa, it's impossible for me to give it up because it's like this adrenaline of, you know, look, even that story, who, Whitey, there's cameras all over that prison. Whitey Bulger was apparently talking about Bob Mueller, who was one of the people who signed him up to members of Congress. And all of a sudden he's wheeled into a cell filled with his old enemies, which is impossible in the Federal Bureau of Prison system. And to this day, no one is charged with that brutal murder, which took a long time. They took a serrated spoon and cut out his tongue and gouged out his eyes. Like, but by the way, and like that's very, but that's, and that's a mob signal. Well, that's a right. message. That's you a, don't talk and you don't a, see. Sure. Right. Even and I nobody's know that. Crying, but no one's crying that Whitey's dead. I'm certainly not. But it raises some questions like, okay, Epstein gets Epstein and then Whitey gets murdered by his enemies and no one's charged. 
I was no just about cares? to ask you about about Epstein. What's your thought on that? I was going I mean, there I too. Have, God, I, I have my own. <laughs> I have my own personal theory, and I'd love okay. to hear yours before I share well, mine. I mentioned that I'm friends with John Gotti Jr., who was actually held in that very cell, and he said it is impossible for someone to commit suicide in that cell. Impossible. It's also impossible that all the tapes just happened to get erased that night. Right. It's, there's way too much. Do you know who's in charge of the investigation into that prison debacle? No. James Comey's daughter, Maureen. Really? So the same players keep emerging in all of these stories over and over and over again. You have Comey involved with the marathon, refusing to show up, refusing to answer questions that were asked of members of Congress. These are, you know, it's not like Michelle McPhee, a reporter, is asking a question. Comey refused to answer questions from Congress. And now his daughter is in charge of the investigation into what happened to Epstein. It's really, it's, I mean, maybe it's just a bizarre coincidence, but it seems a I little I don't think so. I, they know who will play and who won't play. Absolutely. Correct. So here's my Epstein theory is a man like him is used to being in control and making his own decisions and not having anyone have any power in his life. I think somewhere a deal was made, something was brought to him, whether it be cyanide, whatever, so that he could have his last bit of control. And I think then the prison system had to cover it that that actually happened. I don't know if it was a guard that was paid off by his attorney, but I think someone slipped him something. Well, and then all the saying, and then, then, saying then who put the noose they, around his neck? Well, I'm saying, and then I think they went in to cover it up. Well, of course they did. This is a powerful that was, that's man. My, that's my my yeah. guess, because he was a man who was so obsessed with control. But what about a man who's connected to, I mean, now it comes out that, you know, Bill Gates's marriage was somehow. Oh, yeah, no, know, I, I agree. But I, and, I think before they, I think he was given an option. Huh. I don't. Uh, I think somebody helped him along. It's a lot of powerful people that don't don't want their names out there. I don't think that they just said, oh, go ahead. You know what? You've been that kind of G. Go ahead and take your own life. I don't oh, think so. I think, I, think, <laughs> I don't think, think so either, Sabrina. I'm with you. Oh, I do. <laughs> I think he was, I think his he that was his final fuck you. Oh. I think that he's such a narcissist that there's no way he would take his own life. Because but people saying, like but that's that. It's, it's, but it's mm-hmm. down the same path in that he was so controlling. He was, he's such a narcissist. He wasn't going to let anyone make any decisions for him for the rest of his life. Maybe. Well, that's my, that's just my guess. Well, I'll tell you and what, I, Michelle, when you start that investigation, just call me, girl. We'll get on board <laughs> and we'll dig it all out. <laughs> you guys would be a great investigative team. We would, we would kick some ass out there. Well, Michelle, this has been such a pleasure. We want to have you back. Absolutely. Um, Thank you. This is you are like, a part of the, the, the girl squad. That's it. Yeah, that's all. You, this is a squad I want to be part of too. Thank well, you. good. Cause we want you Michelle McPhee. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. 